Well, tonight I wanted to talk to you a little bit about John 17. But I'm going to read the entire chapter. I don't want to break it up. I, um, it just doesn't seem right to break that up. So we'll start at verse 1. <clears throat> John 17. These words spake Jesus, and lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested my name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. They are thine, <clears throat> thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come to thee, and these things speak I in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they may all be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. <clears throat> I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, 
and I in them. <clears throat> the depth of the passage before us cannot be overstated. It is a deep that cannot be plumbed. There are mysteries here that cannot be fully comprehended, and it is my desire to consider some of what we see here, and if the Lord wills, to gather up a few fragments of the fullness of joy that he desires us to know. It is, as verse 13 tells us, for his joy to be fulfilled in us that he spoke these words on the earth. It was that joy unspeakable and full of glory that was in view. Our Lord repeats and expands and intertwines such glorious thoughts and themes in this short prayer that it is very difficult to limit or even pull one of those jewels out without losing the grandeur of the entire prayer. And there are statements made here that boggle the mind in their scope and even cause the soul to draw back in fear lest we pry into things that are too big for us to handle. Of the many themes that run through this prayer, I can only focus on a few tonight, but I do want to touch briefly by way of introduction before I start on the fact that this is a mediatorial prayer, that it was offered by the man, Christ Jesus. He offers it up as a priest for his people. There is sometimes a fear, I think, of diminishing or degrading the deity of Christ by recognizing his manhood. But here we must not miss the important fact that he became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh so that he could redeem us. <clears throat> the fact of his humanity does in no way diminish the fact of his deity. And we do not trade the one for the other, nor do we try to divide them one from the other. <clears throat> they are distinct natures, but he is one person. The liberals explain away the miracles of Christ altogether, but it is a sad thing that we sometimes accomplish the same end when we attribute them to his power as the second person of the Trinity. Christ did not turn the water into wine, nor heal the blind, nor walk on the waves, nor speak as no man spake by the power of his innate deity as the second person of the Trinity. He did so in the power of the Spirit of God that was given to him without measure. He took the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. If he knew the scripture, it was because he had memorized it. If he knew what someone was thinking, it was because the Spirit had revealed it unto him. Christ, as our representative, walked in the power of the Holy Spirit all the days of his life. He emptied himself to do the work that the Father had given him, verse 4. And he had now completed that work. He had fulfilled all righteousness, and the Father had proclaimed on the mount that he was well pleased. This, I think, is helpful for us to remember as we approach passages like this. So just what was so encouraging to our joy in this prayer? Let's follow a few of the threads and see if we can see where they lead us. First, he has, as I've already alluded, completed a work <clears throat> that was given him to do. The perfect righteousness of the second Adam was complete. The spotless lamb was ready for the sacrifice. The active obedience of Christ was completed, and the passive obedience of the cross work now loomed large. He had set out to redeem a people, and the hour had now come. The long ages of time had passed, and the long-anticipated hour when the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent had finally arrived. The Father had so loved the world that he had sent the Son. 
He had given him a people from before the foundation of the world, and the Son now prays for them. There is such a tenderness in those words. I have prayed for them. There is such a longing throughout this prayer for their complete protection. No less than seven times he repeats the thought that they were the Father's, and that the Father had given them to the Son. He had lost none of them. And now he is beseeching the Father to take them up again and bring them to the perfection of love, to be with him, in him, in the Father, and filled with their love. He prays for those there with him, but not only them, but also those that would believe through their word. In verse 20, he is specifically praying for us. A wonderful reminder that from the world, from before the foundation of the world, before the word was ever spoken to bring it into existence, we were in the Father's heart. And before our great-great-grandfathers were born, our Savior was praying for us. So we have the work completed, the people for whom it was done. And in verse 11, a prayer that they would be kept in the world and that they may be one as we are. This petition is expanded and repeated in verse 21 to say that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. He went from a petition for unity like the Trinity in verse 11 to the mind-boggling heights of unity in the Trinity in verse 21. But in verses 22 and 23, he goes even further. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Here he prays, that they would be one even as he and the Father were one. And they would be made perfect or complete in that oneness. Sharing his glory, they would exhibit to the world that the Father loves them as he loves his own Son. He is asking that we would be brought into the love of the Trinity, the fellowship of the triune God, and to share in the glory given to the perfect Son of God, Here is a mystery far too deep to fathom. Here is a wonder of wonders. We, sinful, finite worms of the dust, will be raised from the dunghill to sit on the very throne of heaven. Made lower than the angels and fallen with the devils, we shall sit with Christ on his throne. Our hearts united to his great heart of love, we will be forever in his presence and forever overflowing with his love. The love that the Father had for the Son, verse 24, will be lavished on us, verse 23, for all eternity. The Trinitarian love of God is the basis of this prayer from beginning to end. John tells us elsewhere that God is love. That is an amazing statement in and of itself. Not that he is loving, but that he is by his very nature and essence, love. For all eternity, the Father loved the Son, and the Son 
the Father. The Spirit, the Father, and the Father, the Spirit. The Son loved the Spirit, and the Spirit loved the Son. It was a triunity of perfect bliss in the perfection of love. Now the Son, by his mediatorial work, has united himself to us and is praying that he will return to that circle of glorious love. Having finished the work, he will very soon enter into those gates, and the cry will go forth, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. He will ascend to the throne of heaven, the God-man, forever. The King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Our Redeemer, our Mediator, our Representative, our King, our Elder Brother, our Friend, and our God. And this is the glory that he will share with us. That glory that he purchased here as a man. It is sad to me when I hear preachers preach salvation as if it were fire insurance. (laughs) As if it were a get-out-of-hell-free card. What Christ is praying for here is nothing short of glory glory. It is usually the case that when coming to this passage, much is made of the fact that we will be with him where he is, and and, and that's a wonderful reality. It is. But this, this is far more glorious. We will not only be in his presence, but we will be like him when we see him as he is. There will be a second coming of the Lord in glory. As the psalm says, he will again ascend, and the cry will go out once more, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors. For the King of glory, for then the King of glory, not as the mighty one in battle, but rather as the Lord of hosts, will come in, and we will enter with him through those everlasting gates and sit with him on the throne. There our hearts will beat like his loving heart, and we will be brought into that circle of everlasting love through our union with the Son. The Father loved him from before the foundation of the world, verse 24, and we will partake of this love. Verse 26, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. But how? How can this be? Verse 22 tells us, And the glory you gave me, I have given them. There are two glories spoken of in this prayer. One was given, the other was inherent. I will not pretend to be able to enter into the mysteries of the hypostatic union. I'm not going to try to delve into how these two glories interplay, the one with the other. But there is a glory that Christ possessed as a second person of the Trinity from all eternity. And it's spoken of in verse 5. And there is a glory that was given to him by the Father in verse 22 and 24. Something given implies that the person receiving it did not possess it before. It was given. So this glory cannot be the glory of the Son of God as the second person of the Trinity, but rather the Son of Man as our Redeemer, as our Mediator, as our Representative Head. So very briefly, what was that glory? And how does it produce this amazing result? There are almost as many opinions here as there are commentators. Among them, there are those that thought that he was referring to the gift of the Holy Spirit himself. 
who is elsewhere called the spirit of glory. I believe that view to be that which is closest to the truth, but I do not like to go that far. Certainly the spirit is inextricably tied up in this glory and is the imparter and the sustainer of it. But to make him the actual glory is to make him a thing, an influence, a glory, and not a person. But having said that, I do not think we can separate him from that glory, and we cannot make too much of his operations in the production of that glory. This given glory that Christ here speaks of was, I believe, the glory that he as the Son of Man earned with his spotless life and sacrifice. It was the glory of the mediator, and the glory of the Son of Man was seen in his life of absolute dependence upon the Spirit. His entire life was a life in the Spirit. Of his birth it is recorded that the angel said to Mary, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Of his childhood we know nothing, except the incident in the temple when the teachers were amazed at his understanding, and that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He was our representative, and as such, he had to tread our path. He increased in favor with God. A mystery. A mystery. His fellowship with the Father grew and increased as a perfect man, walking in the power of the Spirit. For the Scripture tells us that he had the Spirit without measure, there being nothing in him to grieve or quench or in any way interfere with his loving communications. At his baptism, the Spirit comes and rests upon him, and the Father declares him to be well-pleasing, again, as the sinless Son of Man. He was led by the Spirit into and sustained in the power of the Spirit in his temptation. He would not use his deity as a crutch. He overcame the devil by the power of the Spirit in his humanity. In all his ministry, he only did and said what was told him by the Spirit. This is reflected in his prayer here at least three times in verses 4, 8, and 14. All that he did and said, he did by and through the Spirit of God. When finally we come to his transfiguration, we hear the voice of the Father again from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the glory that was given him on the mount was the glory of the perfect Son of Man. He had fulfilled all righteousness. He was inspected as the lamb for the slaughter, and he was found to be without spot. It was as such, it was as such that he came down that mountain and set his face like a flint to go to the cross. And from that point on, he went toward Jerusalem. At the cross, it was through the eternal spirit that he offered himself without spot to God. And I think you could probably make a case, although I wouldn't be adamant about it, that the Holy One didn't suffer corruption because the spirit was hovering over his body and that he was raised from the dead by the power of the spirit as well. He did all as the second Adam, our mediator, our representative head, the power of the Spirit of God carried him along. This was his glory. His oneness with the Father here on earth. His holiness. His perfect righteousness. And he in this prayer says he has given this to us. 
We have the same spirit to lead us, to sanctify us, to keep us, and to glorify us. We will be like him. We will be like him. It is the promise of Scripture that he who has begun the good work will complete it. And it is this glorious truth of the gospel that produces holiness holiness in us. In the completion of that work, we are told that we will sit with Christ on his throne as he also conquered and sat down with his father on his throne. That the righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. That when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, we shall also appear with him in glory. And that we shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, as the stars forever and ever. Certainly these promises of future glory are encouraging to our souls. But notice, he does not say in his prayer that he will give us his glory but that he already has. He already has. John 3 tells us, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, for it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. Here we get a glimpse of the working, or the outworking, of this glory in us. He that has this hope in him has been made pure. And it is as we behold his glory that we are made more and more like him. It is the glory of the risen Son of God that we have been given, and it is from glory to glory that we will go. It is as we see him that we will be made like him. Like Moses of old, as we gaze upon his face, we will also shine with his glory. Like Moses and Elijah on the mount, we will be like him when we see him. As he is. You see, Peter, he couldn't tell the difference between the glory of Christ and the glory of Moses and the glory of Elijah. He said, I'll build three tabernacles. And God had to say, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Speaking of the greater glory of the new covenant and the ministration of the spirit, Paul exclaims in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. And again in 1 Corinthians he says, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. How do we know that we will be like him? The Spirit himself is the earnest or the promise that this glory will be complete. For we are told that after we believed, we were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. 
And then finally, we have the testimony of Paul in the 8th of the Romans. And I don't have time to read it, but he shows there that the struggle of the Spirit in us against the flesh is but the first fruits of that glory. And that we will certainly see the day when we will be glorified both body and soul together with Christ. So our Jesus here prays for us that we might share his glory. And in sharing his glory, might be brought into that infinite circle of Trinitarian love. He prayed this prayer that we would know the fullness of his joy. And there is no greater joy than this. Because there is no greater love than his.